Do we have any questions before we go forward? I wasn't going to ask this, but I'll take a chance. Okay. One of the first things you said last week when meditating, it's like you go within and it's like getting to know yourself. And and so then when, and I was trying that and it, and it feels really good to do that. Um, but then God, we talk about God and master and all of those being on the outside. And I know I've heard this question before and probably asked it myself. It's confusing to have this thing on the outside, it seems like, but but what I need to do is go within. And I was wondering if you could comment on that. I, I think that it's a matter of vocabulary. You know, and first of all, I, I'm not quite sure where you got the idea that God and Master are on the outside because Swamiji said that's what is, was so confusing about living with Master was that he was there in his physical body. And so there was the impression that he had a separate reality from Swamiji's own consciousness where in fact it, it, it was his master lived as much inside of him as he lived in his own body. But let's let's take a different way of thinking about it because it's the inside outside that gets so confusing. Um, you know, it's like we we're wearing a costume and we're trying to go underneath the costume. And we have, and our, and our, we have very artificial boundaries around ourselves, and we define ourselves by these very limited conditions: our age, our gender, our habits, our upbringing. And when we're talking about getting to know ourselves, what we're trying to get to know is who I really am, and not just take the superficial habit, but by becoming really silent. Um, and we, we sort of silence the clamor of all those identifications, then we discover that there's a much deeper level of our own nature, and that's what we're trying to get to know. And what happens is when we get to know that aspect of our own nature, we discover that it is not uh, circumscribed by all of these personal details that we think of as ourself and that it, it's I think the literal example is like the fingers of a hand we tend to live and define ourselves here and so every other one seems quite separate from us when we get to know ourselves better what we do is we come to the source of our energy and we recognize that the source of our energy is the same as the source of everyone else's energy so that this is the point at which you understand that this is the divine, this is the guru, this is really everybody in the, in, in the world, and it's also me, and, and we're also this at the same time. So outside-inside is not as helpful as simply, I would say, on the surface or deep, would be an easier way to say it. And when, when you get deep enough, you discover that you feel what you're experiencing and you realize everybody else is experiencing just the same thing. And you, you just sort of know it. You just kind of look at people and you can feel it inside yourself. You discover you feel God's presence, you feel Master's presence, you feel Swamiji talking to you. And they're not talking from outside of you. There's no outside inside at that point. There just is. Does that make sense? 
I know I haven't gotten very far, <laughs> but when I experience calmness, is that? That's is the that, beginning. That's the beginning? Sure. I, I was... I was reading in, uh, it's a little, it's, it's a little bit farther that, I mean, we're probably going to get there tonight, but let me just see where it is. When the vrittis become stilled and there are no more vortices of feeling in heart or spine to obstruct the free upward flow of kundalini to the brain, then alone can one look without prejudice on the world and understand it to its essence as a vibrant, vibrational manifestation of pure consciousness. Okay, that's the last paragraph on 141, and we're just at 138. But I was just meditating, thinking, no vrittis, no vortices, nothing, nothing that's moving, um, moving in duality, nothing that, that's moving back and forth. Everything has just come to perfect rest and then you can see the world. I was trying to think to myself, hmm, what would that feel like? You know, and it's just, it's, you can't think it. But you can just sort of uh, use, Master said imagination is a very important part of the spiritual path, the ability to create a visualize. And so we get a little tiny touch of calmness and then we can imagine what that might be like if it could be become total just going there it's I've, I've been very puzzled today about just how uh, different the spiritual path is from ordinary life we're just trying to do something that nobody's trying to do people are just not at all trying to do this they don't, I mean there's not even a vocabulary there's no bridge between what we're trying to do and what they're trying to do they, meaning people who live from the outside. So we just keep at it. And the good news is you just keep at it and every step is more cheery than the step before. It doesn't mean that you don't go down into valleys, but still you're making progress and you know it. And you're moving closer to the light, so there's correspondingly less darkness in your world, even if you do have to go downhill sometimes to get up again. Fair? Okay. Any other questions or thoughts? Wait, you, you need the microphone. Yeah, it just helps. Thank you. It's so easy to, and maybe this is ancient training, but it is so easy to just keep thinking of God as even near you, but still out. And so, and then the concept of having God within, I still, because I tend to want to see God as huge. <laughs> you know, you sort of picture God's got to be really huge, that he can't possibly be in you. So just sort of you picture him taking up the whole, somehow, the world, but, the universe. So. But you see, here's the, the secret, and this is in 141 here, is that you become huge. Yes. See, the, the mistake here is not that God becomes smaller, it's that you recognize that the the confinement in which you keep yourself, that's the error. God is the same size. It's, it's that we have defined ourselves in this very small way. We think ourselves separate. We think ourselves vulnerable. We're constantly reacting to everything that happens to us. We're, we're just, and that's where the change well, That's comes. the really shocking reality that's right the, there. No, that is the shocking reality. That's exactly true. That's why 
when Dr. Lewis was trying to get Master to give him samadhi, and finally Master said to him, well, could you really take it? You know, if I really liberated you from that comfortable cocoon of self-definition in which you live, and Dr. Lewis, just sort of having a touch of that, had to say, no, sir, I couldn't. I just couldn't. And Rajasi once said, you just wouldn't be able to stand your life. You wouldn't be able to stand the way that we just normally move around all the time. I mean, we see people, it's hard to understand in the abstract, but just at the level of life that we live, we see people who are so just caught up in things, you know, who become angry at the drop of a hat or just have no center or, or, or screaming. And, and it, we just think, how could you live like that? And uh, we have to just realize that from the other perspective, people look at us and they think, how can, how can you be so bound to your little petty things? So we can imagine it just from what we do know, build from what we do know. Remember how Swami, it always, uh, he often would be encouraging us to step out of our, and I always had the impression that from where he was standing, he he was like saying, it's not that hard, just just come over here. And then I often do the same thing to what you were just saying. I often say, gee, just stop doing that. It's, you know, you can just stand over here, it's fine. But... When you're, then you, 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 so then the thing is, isn't it Maya that's doing this to us? Mm-hmm. Maya and Rittis, that's yeah. why, that's why that last paragraph is when all the likes and dislikes have been stilled. Yeah. But you know, it's. But you say often, you know, we've chosen to be this way and we're choosing to do this and we're choosing to do that. Well, you, you, that, the question is, is that a free choice? No, it's a compelled yeah. choice. But the, the way out of it, is just not to quit. And and scrupulous honesty and as much energy as you can bring to bear on the subject. Every time you find that those little vrittis have sucked you down into the rabbit hole one more time, you just climb right out of the rabbit hole and go forward. And it doesn't matter how many times it happens as long as you're determined, as long as you keep clear on, on what is reality. You can lose it for a while but don't ever lower the mountain to meet where you're standing. That's, that's when you're really sunk, when people just declare that what they have is what there is. But is there anything to that first thing I was trying to express of... Swami used to... I, I, it sounded to me a lot like he was just saying, you just come on over here. You don't have to make such a big project out of it. Just but, but you see, the fact that he would continually say that and the fact that you continually say it to someone else, eventually they realize that. And it, it, I mean, you have to be helpful in your comments, but I, I mean, I've, I heard people say things to me for many, many years that just bewildered me, and then one day they didn't. And when they didn't bewilder me, it was the sum total of all the times prior to that when it did bewilder me. And then just one day, the balance, you know, it's that, it's that uh, balance scale. It's tilted against you, and then one day it just tips over. And then from that point, you know, that's what Swamiji would talk about, 
men, women, and sexuality. He just says that once you're out of it, you cannot imagine how it ever could have held you. And he's, you know, he's speaking perfectly well, knowing it's holding us all, but that's a very, just a very fabulous statement to keep in your mind when you feel so compelled by these energies and then think, oh, I'm not going to always. There's, there is a real alternative to this. And our experience where we do have it um, puts us over. Anyone who's gotten out of drugs or drinking or, you know, really bad things like that just suddenly knows. I mean, sometimes the, the AA system tells you you can never say you're cured. But sometimes you are cured. You just would never do it. It's like, I used to love Hostess cupcakes. Do they even still make those anymore? You know, those chocolate ones with the marshmallow centers? I don't think I could even come near one still in the package right now. I can actually remember what they tasted like, and even in memory they taste terrible to me now. But I love those little things. You know, it's just like they were so delicious. It's just the apex of delight. With milk. With milk. <laughs> But it's a very good example. Swamiji talks about going back to Europe and seeing some candy he loved in Switzerland. And just, oh, just as he said, just for sentimental, he bought one and he, had to, he put it in his mouth, he had to spit it out. It was just, I mean, of course, children's taste is different than adults' taste, but we're children and our child taste is different than our saint taste. It'll get better. Today I'm in a very optimistic mood. <laughs> okay. Okay. Any other questions or comments? So, here we are again, otherwise. And the last one was about attunement. By attunement with the mind of an enlightened being, we can, and this is all about how to, um, these are all the otherwises. The vrittis can also be neutralized by calming and retaining outward the breath, otherwise. And we've been going on otherwise for quite some time here. Otherwise, calmness comes also by concentration on some insight achieved during dreams or deep sleep. And Swami then says, obviously Patanjali is not offering these in a mounting sequence of importance. (laughs) Because the last one was attunement with the guru, and this one is the insight that comes to us through dreams or sleep. Um, Swamiji simply deals with this one by making a distinction between those dreams which actually have something to tell us and those dreams which don't. I know sometimes people get very serious about dream study, and Master actually has quite a lot of teaching about it. Savitri's compiled a book about understanding your dreams. It has a particular interest of hers. She's gotten lots of words from Master. I'm tending to be more on Swami's side, where he just states unequivocally, obviously, he says, most dreams are simply a jumble of emotions, memories, and personal impressions, and they are not to be taken seriously. He sort of dispenses with the whole reality here. But it is true that there is um, a closer link between subconscious and superconscious than we might think. And the picture here is that we tend to think of the three levels of consciousness, subconscious, conscious, and superconscious, as being in a, in a line like three boxcars. And that would mean that subconscious is very distant from superconscious. Subconscious being the state of sleep, superconscious being the state of inspiration. But in fact, the picture is, and this is what I draw in my meditation classes, 
if you think of the way a Y, a child's Y is made just with the V, with the stick on it, V standing on a stick, if you take that thing and lay it on its side, and then you have a straight line that's leading to a V like that looks like a funnel, and it's a, the actual truth is that the straight line is the conscious level of reality, just as an image. The upward side, the upward moving half of the V is superconscious. The downward moving side is subconscious, which means that all three intersect at one point. Which, which is, it's, it's, we don't really realize that. That's another thing about how close we are. We think we have to trudge up from subconscious through conscious and then finally make it there, but it isn't really that the conscious is the link. It isn't at all. It's that all three are together at all times. And we have this choice at all times of what we're doing. In fact, but I'll, I'll finish this image because there's another way to say it. This is just a way of understanding it. The similarities between subconsciousness and superconsciousness in this particular image is when we go to sleep at night, we, we, we withdraw from the conscious level. We stop moving, we stop talking, we stop looking, we stop listening, we try to stop thinking. We just roll, roll it back. And then we reach this junction, and at that junction, we put out less and less energy, and then we just kind of roll all the way downhill into subconscious sleep. If, when we've rolled all those things back, suddenly the mind energizes, then we kind of come shooting back out the line here. When we meditate, we stop moving, we stop talking, we, stop, we, try to, we plug our ears, we close our eyes, we try to transcend our thoughts, but when we reach that junction point, instead of lowering our energy and going into sleep, we try to, we try to take all the energy that we have now withdrawn from outward expression and use it in an entirely different way. And see, this is the challenge of meditation. And you see sometimes people meditate like this, because they, they're trying to put out energy and, we, and our, we get our physical bodies involved without meaning to. Um, or the mind starts racing. But ideally, we take all the energy we would have used outwardly and we use it, the only way I can put it is to hold ourselves perfectly still. But we're massively energized. So instead of sinking, we rise. And then what happens when we get um, sometimes fall asleep in meditation is the energy begins to sink and often you'll come to this junction and then you'll just go down again or sometimes you'll suddenly just get unbearably restless your energy will sink and all of a sudden you're standing up you didn't even really decide to stand up but you kind of hit that junction and you just sailed back into the other point so the fact is also that that often su- superconscious does touch us in subconsciousness because it, we're not, it, it takes us out of subconsciousness at that point, but what we are is we've rolled back the conscious mind, which, is, which is very, can very much interfere with superconsciousness, because it rationalizes and it analyzes and it, it's ex- externally oriented and it's intellectualizing, and we can't just kind of grasp that intuitive knowing, which is characteristic of the superconscious. And Swami says a, a great many of his uh, melodies and songs come to him in his sleep. He very often hears them. He either literally hears them in dreams, which are now superconscious dreams, or he wakes up with them. And I know a lot of uh, people who do creative work, including myself, oftentimes if I'm stuck on something, 
I'll just take, I'll lie down and I'll just take a very short nap. But I know, and then often I'll wake up with the answer. Because, no, I'll go, I'll go into actual sleep. I'll, I'll go sound asleep. Um, I'm a very effective n- napper. <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go sound asleep, but I'll wake up with the answer. Or sometimes you can pray before you go to sleep if you have the problem to wake up with the answer, and then you'll wake up with the answer because you can, you can put them all together and the conscious mind is interfering. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, but those kind of dreams, of course, are just completely different. It's not that they don't um, have ridiculous elements. Remember at Spiritual Renewal I was telling this, the dream I had about Swamiji which was, was, was mostly super conscious, but there was a little subconscious thrown into it. I was, I was looking at, so I'm, I'm going to send you over to the Kleenex box because you're going to come on the recording. Um, the, uh, uh, the, uh, I, I was looking at Swami's face, and, I, and in the dream, he was speaking, and he was speaking with a microphone like this, and he was sitting and I looked at his face, and I saw that there was a grammatical mistake on his face. Remember I told this story? And I became concerned because I knew that he would not want to sit in public being filmed and being sent all over the world with a grammatical mistake on his face. He was very, very careful about those things. So I whispered to Lakshman, and we sort of looked at it together, and, and I decided I was just going to have to interrupt him. There was just nothing I, would, I could do. So I walked up, you know, to his talk, and... I peered at him, and I said, Lakshman, it's a period, not an apostrophe, and a period is correct. <laughs> I mean, all of that is just completely ridiculous. But then in that moment, in my dream, Swami turned and smiled at me, and then he began to laugh. And his laugh just infected me, and it was, it was, a, it was a very real and very joyous connection, and I started laughing, and then I woke up. You know, so it was. It, it's a combination sometimes, and those things really do happen. But it's it's all about the feeling of it. It just it was my mind's way of just taking me into a level of joy. And once I got in, got there, I was able to really connect. Yes. So what is it that? Um, uh, what has changed? You know, for example, in your subconscious that it. You know, maybe you just don't go quite down so far. Oh, I go way down there. I mean, everything. But it's just every so often. Tell me, if one could parse this out as to know why sometimes <laughs> it works better than others and you could bottle that, you'd have a really great system. That it's, it's, I, the only image that I have ever been able to know is to reach the top of a mountain, you go over a lot of hills and valleys. And it's all an upward climb. You increase your awareness. I mean, you can think of it in lots of different ways. Um, the other image, I mean, these are the, I say classic images only because they're the ones that I've been repeating for years. All of your karma is buried um, like paper clips in the sand. Every time you do Kriya and run the magnetism of Kriya over those paper clips, they're, they all move a little. But the ones that are deeply buried just wiggle a little bit because there's a lot of sand for them to come through. So every time you're doing Kriya, praying, chanting, meditating, thinking right thoughts, everything, all of those little paper clips of karma start heading for the surface. And they just uncover and come out just randomly. 
I mean, it appears random, but it isn't random. It's, a, it's an exact magnetic relationship. The, the karma is freed, the vrittis come. And that's why you just, you don't, you just keep going because you just don't have any idea. I mean, when I was contemplating the last paragraph of 141, which I read to you at the beginning here, I mean, all of those, all of those vortices and those vrittis are just, we're just so barely conscious of them. You know, we feel relatively functional. But if, but if you are sensitive to yourself at all, you, you can just sort of feel the tension. It's just under there. And, uh, but everything gets, everything in future will improve. There's just a point at which you're just locked into the system and it doesn't matter how long it takes. Everything in future will improve and nothing will get better for quitting. And so it's kind of irrelevant. Doesn't matter what happens, doesn't matter how long it takes. I was talking to someone just the other day, just facing a terrible test. Really, a, really a tough one. And, uh, but we both said, what choice? You know, there's no, there is no, I mean, this can make you a little frightened if you choose to, but there's no alternative. I mean, it does make you frightened. I said to Swamiji once, because I had two friends, this was many years ago, I had two friends who both went into a, a mentally unbalanced state. And in both cases, I felt like it was a, temporarily, but I felt like it was a metaphysical illness. It was a just looking into the abyss. And Swami said, oh yes, madness is a stage on the spiritual path. He said, there's a point at which you realize really what this is really all about and what you're really going to have to do and you can't face it. So you seek an alternative. You just roll down into subconsciousness and just hope you can stay there. But it doesn't work. I mean, I've explained, expressed to you all before when I was very first waking up to the spiritual path. I vivid, just before I met Swami, when I, actually I was more involved in it at that point, but I didn't know how it was going to work out for me. And I really seriously considered whether I would have a nervous breakdown. It was kind of an objective consideration. But just like, because the, the, the pressure um, to shift my consciousness, the desire to shift my consciousness was so intense, and my understanding of how it was ever going to happen was so... Was so unformed that I, I just was becoming so desperate um, but it, for me I'm, I mean I'm not attracted to mental illness but there's a familiarity to it and I, I mean that was a moment where I just stood there and it was really I, the, the phrase hadn't come in yet but been there done that I could just kind of see what it would be like and I could see that it would end it would end, it was a complete circle that would end exactly where I was standing. And there would, nothing, there would be no forward progress. There would just be an enormous loop. Absolutely nothing would be solved. And sooner or later, I would be standing literally exactly where I was standing, which was in the window of my apartment at 4th and Gary looking into the backyard. I would be standing exactly there with exactly the same problem in front of me. And it just seemed just not worth it. I mean... I looked at it like it was a whole incarnation. You know, I could just go here. I go in and out of mental hospitals for this lifetime, which people do. All of this, you know, is not to um, in any way diminish the, the anguish of those experiences. But there really does come a point where there is no choice. 
And that's what gives you courage. Courage is sort of like, what choice do I have? You know, a lot of times soldiers in battle will do astonishingly brave things. They, didn't, they don't think about it as brave. There's their friend. He's hurt. He's been their friend for all this time, and they just go out and get him. They don't even think about the bullets or the death or anything. It's just like, I have to go get him. That's how we have to get on the spiritual path. There's no thought about this. You know, just when I was talking to my friend, there was no thought. There was no thought of quitting. It was just how bad is this going to get and how long is it going to last, that's all. And, you know, knowing that there'll be an end point to it. All karma ends. All right. Any other questions or thoughts? So, Swami Patanjali does tell us that we can concentrate on the insights achieved during dreams or deep sleep, which is nice to know. I remember years ago, very many years ago, before I was at Ananda, when I was just reading, somewhere it said that enlightenment can come to you when you're asleep. <laughs> and my friends and I all decided that that was the method we wanted. <laughs> which, also, which also went along with one of my friends who was very, very good at sleeping. He, he had the capacity when he didn't want to face something to sleep, you know, 15 or 17 hours a day. I mean, he was really a champion sleeper. And he, he said, well, there's only three states of consciousness and I've mastered one. <laughs> he tried to put that forward. Of course, it's a joke, but I always enjoyed that. Just by the way, going back to the, the why, you know, the, there are so many little tricks in meditation, but the position of the eyes, which is one that we hear about, if you're falling asleep, if you're getting sleepy in meditation, invariably invariably your eyes will have dropped. And merely lifting them, which you might not think is much of a gesture, but merely lifting your eyes, your closed eyes, uh, draws you right out of there because you cannot both look at the spiritual eye and fall asleep. Of course, your eyes may get drawn down again, but if with enough willpower, you can just raise your eyes and look into the spiritual eye. Because if the sleepiness in meditation is not because you're actually sleepy, but because you're not conscious and you've withdrawn, uh, you're not putting out enough energy. The other thing, just to make, just to finish the, con- the three levels of consciousness, this is not relevant to our whole image, but I just wanted to say it. The, the other thing that we have to understand is, uh, the way Swami described it once, which is really important, is that there aren't really three levels of consciousness. There's just two, which is the subconscious habit to pull us, And subconsciousness is defined by the belief that we'll be happier if we put out less energy and if we're less aware. Contractive awareness is comfortable. That's what subconscious means. Superconscious means that expanded awareness is the only path to fulfillment. And really, those are the only two realities that actually exist because the conscious mind is merely the battleground where those two forces continually act themselves out with, as Swami said, with, uh, with us in the middle. And so at all times, when you're conscious, you're actually either moving toward contractive consciousness or you're moving toward expanded consciousness. You're never static. There's no static point called conscious. It's, it's either going one way or another. And if you don't move toward expansiveness, you get sucked down because habit will pull you back if you're not using your willpower to go forward. So there's just, there's, that's why take care of the minutes, Master said, and the incarnations will take care of themselves. And that's why, you know, people who 
make spiritual progress or wide awake all the time. That was what Swamiji was like. He was just wide awake all the time. And that's why, for me at least, that was one of the many attractions to being in his company is that you had to stay awake. And I, I, I want to stay awake, but I'm not always able to make myself stay awake. But in his company, I could always make myself stay awake. It's like, I mean, a mother with a new baby doesn't have any trouble remembering to love the baby. And that's one of the reasons why people like to have babies because it brings this incredible flow of selfless love out of them and it's very, very attractive. But it's the flow of selfless love that they're really enjoying. It's just that the baby makes it effortless. And that's in the company of a highly evolved spiritual person, which was the sutra we just finished. It's much easier to have that consciousness because the vibration is all around you. And by contrast, when you hang out in places where the energy is downward pulling, that also becomes your habit, which is a big challenge. Yes. Which is why people go away to ashrams and caves. Not an option for us, but nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a really simple book that Swami wrote that has been so helpful for me. With like, There are a million times during the day when my energy wants to just... And if and you can just let it go. But that the twenty six keys to living oh, with to higher, higher awareness, awareness which yeah. is this tiny little book, ha, like just while you were talking, I thought, you know what? I'm just sitting here schlumped in my chair, and so I, I sort of did. I this. noticed you sitting up. Yeah, I just I just <laughs> thought, oh, you know, I have a spine. Let me just straighten it up. And I mean, it's so like it really is true that there are all these little things that happen during the day, and if you sort of just have a, a few of them in mind, you really uh-huh. can't. You can just ratchet it up yeah. again but if you and it's amazing how many little things you can just grab during the day well, to do, which I Swami said several times on, in the tape I was listening to I always say master said you only have to do 10% of what he teaches he kept saying master said you only have to do a hundredth part of what he teaches Cause, but but you have to do the part that works for you Shivani is really big on energization and I you know, spent a month with her and every time I'd turn around when there was a, a spot, Shivani would be <laughs> you know, just doing, energizing her little body. She was always doing it. Just, just that much of it, you know, but just like, let's go there again. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> it does it for me. I have a real clear picture. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's the 26 keys. Book is uh, too much. It's a booklet. It's a pamphlet. There's so much. Swamiji just did initiative after initiative after initiative, and and he would replace, you know, he would replace each one with the one after it. And, you know, even running along next to him, you just, they just sail past you. So now our job for the next so many years is to find them all and, Bring them all back because there's just so much out there. <laughs> he may not have been too much of a regular person. Swamiji? He was a regular person at some point. So was Jesus Christ. Everyone was a regular person at one point. Yeah, and that's very, um, it's very important. Swamiji himself said that's why he's so good at teaching because every doubt you ever had, he had it. And he was, he understood. That's, I mean, that to me is a vividly important point. Okay, sutra number 139. Otherwise, (laughs) also, by meditating on anything one finds elevating to his consciousness, there there is a whispers poem, and I don't know what number it is, 
but he, he, it's, it's about a bubble of joy. And he says, you know, take a tiny bubble, whatever bubble of joy, I can't think how he starts it, but the end point is, whatever bubble, you ha- the bubble of joy that you can feel, and then he says, whatever causes it. And then he says, expanded and expanded and expanded. And for some reason, that always struck me very strongly that it, it's less important you know, what it is as long as it's taking you in the right direction. And then you build on whatever you have. And now that has to be a bubble of real joy and not a bubble of illusory joy. But whatever it is that lifts you even a little bit. And Swamiji goes on here to talk about the extreme importance of, of what your environment is like, what your home environment is like, just wherever you are, whatever... And he says, just surround yourself with things which inspire you and, and avoid as much as you can those things which are cacophonous to your mind. We went to a wedding over the weekend, which was a very, was a very nice wedding in the sense that the, uh, the couple has, has, has a very nice relationship and you know, everybody was very happy about the wedding. Two good families uniting. They were young. And their attitude about a lot of things is contemporary, including the volume of music. And for reasons known only to themselves, they decided that we would not hold the music until after dinner when people like myself could leave, but we would bring the music into the dinner and we would crank up the volume so that you could barely talk to the person next to you. And it wasn't even really terrible music. It was bad, but it wasn't terrible. Um, but it, it just assaulted us, from my point of view, for about an hour and a half. And dinner was very long and slow. And I was with extremely good company, and I had a wonderful time. I had a wonderful time, but wow, when we finally came out of there, I mean, I really felt like somebody had been beating on me with a spoon. Just this constant energy like that. And how could anyone choose that? But people choose it all the time. And it's very, it's, it's just very odd what we, um, what we grow accustomed to. And, and in our society, this is a very, very difficult problem because our society has become, the external expression of our society has just become more and more coarse. There's really no other word for it. Swamiji once remarked hearing music somewhere or maybe reading a newspaper headline or both. He said, it just, he said, the planet's just trying to have an explosion. He said, it's just, it's working itself. The planet is working itself up to an explosion. That's how he put it. And that's sort of what you could feel. I mean, these were very nice people. But everybody in there, we, we just sat in this room and, and, had, and were assaulted by overwhelming sound waves that made it impossible to be centered. It was just... I mean, even though it was on a certain level unpleasant, it was also fascinating to me just to sort of see it. And then what you also saw among what was really a very fine group of young people, many, actually, I met quite a few really interesting young people doing really interesting things. I mean, solid people doing serious work. I mean, really engaged in their lives and making things happen. But you also saw tremendous amount of insecurity you know especially among the women well not really 
just sort of shows more among the women in the way they're dressed and the way they fix themselves up and so on like that. But I was, I was thinking about it later, about how closely interrelated the two things were. Because with all that um, noise, how could you find any point within yourself? You know, you, you, were, you were just literally being pushed from side to side the whole time. So everything about you would be like that. You know, with all my spiritual training, it was um, possible to, to declare it unpleasant and more or less just live my life as I wanted to live it. And then afterwards realize that it had taken a bit of a toll on the nervous system. But if you're not grounded, and, and that's what is happening all around us. And uh, that's why we're here. That's why we're working as hard as we can to do everything that Ananda is. But for ourselves personally, um, we have to pay attention to that. You know, what, what am I wearing? What am I looking at in my house? What am I listening to? Where am I taking myself? Just everything. What, am I, uh, what vibrations am I allowing into my world? And you know, all of us have our higher and lower moments. But it just need, it needs to be a constant uh, attention to this and, to, and not, not ever to underestimate um, the importance of all of those realities. Fair enough? Any comments? I don't think anybody disputes it. Swami also says here, he has this interesting question about um, even pretty pictures of flowers and mountains, though pleasing to look at, may induce in us the thought, this is a wonderful world to live in. (laughs) If so, such pictures are less spiritually helpful, even if they are restful to the eye and the mind. Um, he, he just, you have to examine everything. But he then goes on to say that he, he can't really recommend, you know, it's difficult to suggest really inspiring paintings. So harmonious scenes of nature and so on are, and he says you have to put something on your walls because too austere and too unattractive an environment is downward pulling in another way. So I, I often... Uh, Sometimes it's good, but I often, I, I know I myself, I camped in this world. I never actually lived in it. I just camped. It was like I was always, I always had my suitcase half packed for a really long time. But it wasn't really, as I was speaking on Sunday, it wasn't really true vairagya so much as just um, that kind of inner insecurity. Just not knowing where to, how, how and where to plant myself. And it wasn't like I was really free inside. It was that I just didn't, didn't know how to live. So it's, it, these are all sensitive issues. You can't, just, um, you can't just sort of get a script and then wear it. You have to actually feel it from inside yourself and then move, move out from whatever is real for you and whatever you really like and whatever really... And Swamiji talks in, uh, I think perhaps it's in the next... Sutra about how every atom is dowered with individuality. And so that which is going to be inspiring and pleasing to one person may not necessarily speak to another one at all. It was a very, it was a long learning for me, speaking of being in relationship to Swamiji, to become comfortable just saying what I liked and didn't like. 
instead of always trying to find the right answer. Uh, this is completely unrelated, but I was remembering the other day um, this from very early, like 71, 72. Swamiji had a, a record player with us, uh, 33 RPM records, you know. And he had a record of Jacqueline Dupree, <clears throat> who was a cellist. <clears throat> She's the one who later developed MS, but she was a really gifted musician. And he had a beautiful recording of a beautiful piece that she played, and sometimes we would listen to it. But whatever came after it was not nearly as attractive. And we, we had just listened to it, and then it was just beginning to start the next, and Swami said to me, Asha, would you stop that? And I got up to stop the record player, but I was halfway to the record player, and I, then suddenly I was seized with this massive insecurity. <laughs> Did you mean the record player, Swamiji? <laughs> I didn't know whether he was just suddenly reading my karma and wanted me to cease and desist and something else. <laughs> I was ha- half joking, but only partially, because all he said out of nowhere was, Asha, would you stop that? Oh, okay, I'll try. What? What? <laughs> of course, he only meant the record player. But uh, it, was, it, was, um, uh, it was a fabulous moment, actually, just in a split second trying to imagine, you know, what I had been doing that had caused him to say it, you know, in that very sort of clipped and urgent somewhat way, do it and do it now. He was just trying to save us from having to lose that beautiful piece of music. <laughs> Funny, isn't it, how things are? <laughs> okay, any questions or thoughts? I was remembering um, the story of when Swami was living in Gargon, and there was a group of students, I think they were high school girls, that were on a tour or something, and he had talked to them one day about... Maya and evil and the nature of it and things. And then the, he actually called them back the next day and wanted to make sure they understood what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. So I think that's relative here somewhere, isn't it? Because I, I can't remember. I remember the incident, and I, it may also have been actually that one of the girls wrote to Swamiji. Yeah. I just think that uh-huh. we so uh, I so underestimate Maya. Huh. Constantly, you know, yeah. I don't like to say constantly, but frequently, you know, most of the time, and yeah. and it's so easy to to f- sort of forget it or not be paying attention to it when it's it's basically the root of all evil, isn't it? Well, it it doesn't. I'm not sure what the helpfulness of that thought is. What we have to realize is that that we every minute counts, just as simple as that, and and we have to be realistic. Everything I. I can say it all at the same time. Yeah. Okay. So I find that when, you know, maybe meditation isn't going well, I'll remember peak experiences. Right. Trips to India, Italy, you know, times where you were just somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And then I'll think about those, and that, that helps. Absolutely. It takes you back. Those are the pearls, and everything else is the string. After our first India pilgrimage... And back in 87, 86, um, when we went to, we were able to get into Lahiri Mahashaya's house, and we went to um, Sarampur, where, um, not Puri, where Sri Yukteswar's body is buried. We didn't go to Babaji's cave, 
but we did go up and see the Himalayas. And of course we went to Master's house. And then we came back, and the first Sunday we were back, as a light bearer, I stood in front of the altar and I was going like this. And I realized that I had a relationship with the Masters that I didn't have before. And because I, I, when I saw Lahiri's picture, it all of a sudden, it connected with what it felt like to be standing in the courtyard of his house. And when I saw Sri Yukteswar especially, I, I, I felt it immediately. And it was interesting that everyone on that trip and all of us who were accustomed to performing the ceremonies all had exactly the same experience. It was a very real confirmation of pilgrimage. Um, without it, because Partly also because it was so... Um, it, it just happened. It wasn't like I tried. I mean, you were speaking of conjuring up those, but that also made me realize that the same exactly what you're saying, that it's buried in you. And once it's in you once, you can always go back to it if you want to, because it's there with all the rest of the vrittis, <laughs> but it's the one that you want to be putting your energy behind. Well, let's take a break, and then we'll... Okay. Okay, this is um, number 140. Gradually, one's mastery of concentration extends from the smallest reality to the largest. This is this charming thought of the fact that if you're infinite, you're also infinitesimal. My guru wrote in Autobiography of a Yogi that every atom is dowered with individuality. A simply amazing statement. It means that though we are all of us expressions of God, each one of us is in some way unique. Just an amazing... I was just looking at a group of people just the other day, just thinking, we're so, each one of us is so real to himself. And each one of us just sort of goes along and everything that we're doing is so consistent with what just came before. I, uh, I learned this uh, when my parents went into their decline the last four or five or six years of their lives. And when they first began to decline, I exerted my energy and my will tremendously to manage their situation. They were in Southern California, so that was no small effort on my part. And there was a kind of minor um, panic in me that was sort of there all the time. My mother once, it was not exactly the same issue, but my mother once turned to me and said, every time I cough, you think I'm about to die. I'm not about to die. There's a lot of life left in me yet, she said. (laughs) And it kind of epitomized the overall level of concern that was always emanating from me. And at one point, just looking at myself, I realized that I was looking at their situation as if it was the plot of a movie, and suddenly I'd woken up and I was inside their lives. And with no preamble, no connecting link, I was just inside their lives. If I found myself in exactly the situation they were in, then I would exert my willpower and run around and try to shift it in all these ways. And my efforts were not bringing the positive result that I'd hoped for in any way, on any level. And I, it, it finally occurred to me that where they were was exactly where they needed to be, which is a, a axiomatic, but I, it meant more to me at this point. And more than that, there, was, there had been no break in reality for them. 
that this was a, just a, the very next step on a very long journey. What to speak of this incarnation, but all the incarnations that they'd been in, it had all just been leading them right up to this moment. And it was familiar. It might not be all that comfortable, but it was completely natural for them to be in that particular state. They were in their beginning of their 80s, and everything was just as it should be. And yes, they were older, and yes, conditions were a little uh, more complex and so on like that. But that's the individuality. That um, there's a really deep um, implication of this. If every atom is dowered with individuality, if every human being, every being on the planet is going to have to follow its own trajectory, we realize that there's nothing for us to do with judging, uh, with worrying, with impatience, um, with lack of, even with lack of support, I mean, of a, from the heart. Every, no one is going to do it your way. Everybody is going to do it their way. You know, it doesn't matter if you've been married, doesn't matter if it's your child. They just, they can't. There's just no possible way that they can do it any way but their own way. And every step of their destiny, the hour of their birth, the hour of their death, their health, you know, sudden changes, anything, it, it just all has to happen according to that. And it goes all the way to infinity. That's what's so amazing about it. They will never become you in the sense of conforming to the, your exact ideas. They're always going to have to play it out just the way they are. Swamiji was just so amazing in that, in the way he could just take everybody for exactly who they are. And there was no impatience in his nature. I remember once he said to me something, he was talking to me about you know, my own inclinations. He said, yes, it's tempting to think, oh, if this friend had that quality and if only this one had that quality... He said, but if you start down that road, pretty soon you'll be a very lonely person. <laughs> There's just no, it, it can't be different than it is. And that, of course, also includes us. That, that one, without, without ceasing to be making a serious spiritual effort, one also realizes that every atom has got its own way. And they're just, it's just all going to have to flow in the way it's going to flow. That was when I was talking to my friend with the karmic test that um, she's facing. It's like, it's perfect. It's just exactly what it has to be. It's terrible, but it's perfect. Everything, every, everything in my life has led to this. I love in the Bible, Jesus says, just before he was crucified, you know, for this hour was I born. And the, the most amazing thing about that statement, you see, is that that's the truth for every one of us. It's such a dramatic moment in the life of Jesus. He can declare that, and of course everyone says, yes! But for this hour were we born. We've been working for incarnations. It's just astonishing when you think about it. Millions of incarnations to bring us right to here. But there's also something really um, gorgeous about that. Really something just absolutely wonderful that, that we've been walking our divine path to get right to this point. Everything is infinite, everything is infinitesimal. It's all, it's all, it all merges into the same reality. Isn't that interesting? I, that lesson with my parents was 
just a gigantic one, which I've just called back to mind many times. Yes, Karen. I think one of the hardest things on the path for me, maybe for a lot of people, is to be working hard on yourself and to be so deeply accepting of what is at the same time. I think that's a really beautiful and difficult balance. Because yogis in particular are hard-working, perfectionistic, slightly at least, bunch, even to have the thought that you can achieve what we're aiming for. And to also be deeply accepting. Is this a rare combination? Uh, there was an article in Yoga Journal in the 1970s. It was called The Dark Side of Meditation. <laughs> and that was this whole analysis of how people who take up meditation are often type A personalities, and so they become obsessive about being perfect. <laughs> and when you're meditating for perfection, if you're infinite perfection, you can become completely neurotic about it. It's, let, me, let me try to just sort that out for a second, because it's really important. that's why devotion is everything. And the, the only and the simple answer to that is devotion. Because there's, there's a... a, a it, love is the only thing that solves that. Otherwise, you're just thinking, thinking, thinking. And when you're thinking, 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 you can't, you can't resolve it. I'm, I should be perfect, and I'm not perfect. Why am I not perfect? I should be perfect, and why am I not perfect? But then you, you slip into another state where you're happy. And then when you're happy, it doesn't occur to you to worry about whether you're perfect or not. And if you can have joy in the moment, then that it's just, it's not what it appears. That's why you can't think, that too much thinking and too much rational and too much reasoning it out doesn't help you. You have to go back to the heart. So I think there is a very real answer to that. When you find yourself there, it's not really a conundrum. You're using the wrong tool at that point. Yeah, it's it's you're using the wrong tool at that point, and it's not that you're not perfect; it's that you're um, using the wrong tool. It's a little bit like my parents, really. You're analyzing the situation from the wrong angle. This is the issue. It's the concern with perfection that's the issue, not the lack of perfection. (laughs) Uh, Nishkama. Just briefly, I, I I think. That situation can be used as a gift uh, that can spur you to, to turn in the right direction. Yes, definitely. As soon as you're aware that this is happening inside, you can say, okay, thanks, I'm yeah. going to move off this, and I know some of the ways I can do this, and I'm going to practice them right now. Well, it's also, I mean, it's, it's very egotistical to be upset that you're not perfect. That's what, that was the way Swami dealt with that when Seva was moody and she had done something that had caused Swamiji great inconvenience. And this is in my book. And about four days later, she was still in a mood. And Swami said, what are you, why are you so moody? Oh, she said, I did so and so, and it, you know, I felt so bad about it. And Swami's response was, how egoic. And she was shocked because she thought she was being, you know, very pleasantly, she was uh, really down on herself. And how could that be ego- egoism, egotism? And he said that you're so shocked that you made a mistake that all these days later you're still worshiping it. <laughs> Which is that, you know, I thought I was perfect and now a little speck of dust has entered into the picture and now I'm just absolutely stricken. And he said, that, that's, it's, really, it's, it's really ego. 
masquerading. Because if, we're, if we have humility and we make an error, we're not shocked. There's nothing shocking about this. Of course I made a mistake. Why, why, would, I have, why would I have ever thought that I wouldn't? Oh, I had a misunderstanding. Oh, I had a lack of willpower. I wasn't attentive. I let selfishness take me over. Hmm, isn't that interesting? But it's no, it's, no, it's no cataclysmic national emergency that everything has to reorganize itself around. So it's a very, um, you know, that, that one twists your mind up, but it's, uh, it has no truth in it. It's not, it doesn't even have a little truth in it. The ego wants to tell you, well, there's, even, there's something, some small good here. No, it's completely worthless. It has no value at all. It's just a complete twist up. I've, I've been there, done that one a long time. So I can speak really strongly that that is really, really a useless guy. Just throw him out the bus and just never think about him again. Yeah. yeah I think in, in that sense it is your ally. And when, when you recognize that, yeah. uh, it spurs you to move elsewhere. Everything, every mistake is your friend. Because yeah. every yeah. mistake tells you what you don't want to do. And if sometimes it takes a while to recognize that it's a mistake. Yeah, that's tricky. Yeah. That's where the tricky guy comes in. <laughs> Absolutely. You said that you were, when you were talking about your parents, that they're walking down this path. And so uh-huh. I guess that's what we're all doing. But where, where does effort come in? Does the path all of a sudden include effort and will? A path always includes effort and will because otherwise you're sinking. If you're not trying, you're sinking. My parents were trying. Well, they were, they were responding actually pretty decently to their own karma. I was the one who wasn't. <laughs> I mean, they were pretty accepting, and they were adjusting, and they were making their lives work. But, but they're completely different, completely different people than I am. And so the way they coped with their karma is not the way I would have coped with their karma, because it wasn't my karma. <laughs> Can you follow that? I would never have been in exactly that same situation, because my destiny would not have led me to exactly where they were standing. I saw them standing there, and I tried to... I tried to make them react to their circumstances the way I would react to their circumstances. It was just a big mess. I, I just didn't, I didn't, I wasn't respecting them. That's why it must look like everybody else isn't using any effort. Yeah. No, but they were doing, they did a good job. Yeah. They had some hard karma and they did a really good job with it. And I didn't. I mean, but then I did. I finally, when I relaxed, all of a sudden, you know, I had intuition instead of just egoism. And I had kindness instead of impatience. And I had acceptance instead of fear. And there were just all kinds of things that just shifted when I just realized that every atom in creation is dowered with individuality. And so are my parents. They're just going to live their lives the way they need to live them. I made mistakes that I still regret, but, you know, I did the best I could. Okay. There's another um, part of this um, when he talks about how uh, Darwin, you know, he go, he goes after Darwin every once in a while about um, how Darwin just didn't have any sense of it being of of it going anywhere. That he just he he described this mechanism which um, Master and many others have said is not even valid in and of itself. But the fact that everything in creation is consciously expanding into a higher level is just such a, a different way of 
of thinking about it. And if every atom is dowered with individuality, everything is conscious. That was J.C. Bose's incredible discoveries that Master writes about. And that's one of the reasons he, Master put that into Autobiography of a Yogi. I mean, of course, it was pride of India, and it was important to show that kind of subtlety and greatness. Um, it was an important part of what Master was doing. He was trying to bring, is trying to bring East and West together and India and America together. But also just the simple facts of what Bose discovered and demonstrated, which is far from this just being an inert world and things being acted upon. Just everywhere we look, there is consciousness, and all of that consciousness has this destiny. That there's no, there's no place in creation where everything isn't moving toward the infinite. You, you can see how when you can tune into these things, this is the answer to all anxiety, this is the answer to all insecurity, all fear about the future, um, all confusion about the nature of reality. It's all an expression of uh, this divine force and that this divine force is all seeking to fulfill itself in the light. And it also gives us a way to, to draw energy. This sort of the, the question that you were asking earlier, Sai Ganesh, about just being in, in atmospheres like the one I was describing, where you, it's just such an uncongenial atmosphere. It is, and then on the other hand, it isn't, because you're never really anywhere except in this vast field of consciousness of which we are a part. And, and the, it's never less or more accessible to us. It's only our own ability to master our um, um, contradictory forces within us, of course, which is where, where we started tonight when I was talking about just to actually have no vrittis, no vortices that block that flow of energy. You know, that to be so, even in that, you know, in that room, to be so unable to go beyond my physical senses that I couldn't, I couldn't stop hearing it. You know, it just was always, I was always hearing. It was partly because I was trying to be in them to talk to people and then I was being interrupted. But none of that is necessary, really. I was at, I was at a bar mitzvah reception, actually, once. It was actually, it went so loud that I stopped hearing it. And David was just amazed. I was, I was perfectly happy in an atmosphere where he just couldn't imagine that I could ever be happy. But somehow, on, on that occasion, I, I did something that I wasn't able to do the other night, where it just became so loud that it was not, I just didn't even notice anymore. I, I, somehow I, I closed off my ears. I wasn't trying to talk to anyone. That's probably part of it. But, but we were also talking about Varanasi, which is a city of contrasts. And I remember the first time we were there especially. I mean, it's on so many levels, especially for Westerners, it's just a really terrible, difficult place to be. And simultaneously, it's so spiritual. And I was just remember just being in the middle of this traffic jam, just an unbelievable traffic jam. This was our first trip where it was virtual gridlock, completely noisy, utterly choking. And I, that first trip, I, I wasn't sick as long as I didn't eat. <laughs> so I rather steadily didn't eat. I had a diet of tomato soup and white bread for a lot of that trip. So I was kind of lightheaded from not eating. 
I was aware of the fact that everything was ugly and noisy and unbearable, and I was just blissful. There's no other word for it. So we know that these things can happen. It just is a question, we just keep trying and we just keep trying. That's what's so much fun. When I came to Ananda when I was 24, 23, I didn't know if it would hold my attention for my whole life because quite a few things in my life, even at that age, didn't last as long as they were supposed to. You know, they just got used up. But just year after year after year, and at a certain point you realize this actually goes all the way to infinity, so there's no point at which you use this up. You know, it eventually uses you up and then you're gone. But because there's always a way to turn it, always a way to turn it, so that it's, it's, it's forward-moving and expansive. It's fabulous, isn't that good news? Every atom. When Paula was sick, I'm just going to mention this last thing, when Paula was sick with cancer, which eventually killed her, Paula was the woman I talk about in the Finding Happiness movie, her, the particular affirmation of Master she loved the most is when the little cells with their tiny mouths were consuming light. And she used to just, she was very childlike, she used to just love, and she would talk about the tiny mouths of her little cells, you know, just eating, eating light and eating health. And they just, but every time she'd say it, you could see that she could see those little tiny mouths. You know? It's marvelous when you're doing the energization to think of all your little cells in their tiny mouths, just sucking up the light. There's always a way. I leave town on November 11, and so whatever the class is the week before, that's the last one. So probably the first week of November. And that's going to be a hiatus for quite a few months after that. Okay.